All right, Genesis chapter 7 is where we pick back up. And last time we went down as far as the end of chapter 6. So tonight we pick back up there at the end of 6, beginning of 7. And I'll tell you what, just for context's sake, since we kind of left off in the middle of this account of God uh, speaking of his judgment that was about to come upon the earth and speaking to Noah and telling him to prepare for the ark of God's deliverance that he was going to use. So why don't we just kind of, if nothing else, just to get a running start, let's just uh, look at verse 11, though we already covered this. We'll just read from verse 11 down through the rest of the chapter as we kind of refresh ourselves with where we're at. It says, verse 11 of chapter 6, Then the earth was corrupt before God and filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And of course, as we said, God judges time morally. And as the moral clock was ticking, it came to the point where God then said to Noah, who, remember it said, had found grace in the eyes of the Lord despite this ungodly age. God said to Noah, verse 13, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, covered inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. So again, this sort of barge-like structure God tells Noah to make. Again, dimensions-wise, as we look at it, taking the cubit as an 18-inch measurement, that would give us you know, 450 foot long, 75 foot wide, and about 45 foot high. This just large, rectangular, barge-type boat that would be something that would be very sufficient to just float during the time of the flood uh, that he could be preserved in he and his family and of course as God told him to bring the animals on the ark too of each kind of male and a female to replenish the earth after God cleansed it during this time of judgment so God gives him the instruction how to build the boat verse 16 to make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from above set the door and the ark in its side so again there's one door in which someone might enter this ark in the same way there's one door in which we can experience God's salvation uh, to escape the wrath of God that's coming upon the earth once again. That's through the door of Jesus Christ himself. There's only one door that's available, but praise God there is one. So make this door in the side, he says, and make it with a lower second and third deck, so three levels. It was a tri-level ship. And behold, I myself am bringing the flood waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish, God tells Noah, my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. And they shall be male and female of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. And verse 22, right where we left off last time, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him so 
he did. So uh, here is Noah, and we know that from the time that God gives this instruction to Noah and divinely warns him of the judgment of God that's about to come upon the earth, there's about a hundred year span plus between the time when God gives this warning to Noah from the time when, as we'll see tonight, when God actually brings the flood waters upon the earth as it rains for 40 days and 40 nights and as well it says the, the 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 waters the subterranean waters from below also break apart and of course there's this universal flood on the earth upon which every living thing other than Noah and his family and the animals preserved inside the ark are all destroyed and cleansed from the earth and Noah becomes this preacher of righteousness who for the next 100 years Again, reminding you of what the grace of God is like after the warning of judgment is coming for the next 100 years. Noah, it tells us in verse 22, did according to all that God commanded him. So God gives him this warning and then God gives him this instruction. It says, Noah, I want you to build this ark whereby you and your family might be saved. And I'm going to make my covenant with you. I'm going to start afresh upon the earth and make a new covenant with you. And I want you to build this barge and I'm going to bring rain and flood waters upon the earth. Now again, as we've said before, it has never rained before. Uh, God could have told Noah that he was going to do anything. Uh, and, and from Noah's perception and everyone around him, nobody ever heard, it had never rained yet. So rain, what's rain? Uh, and God's going to flood the earth. Well, what does that mean? And yet... Here God tells him the judgment is coming. God tells him to build this ark and he obediently, as an act of faith, does exactly what God tells him to do. Builds this massive structure over the course of about a century. And, and what a tremendous, if you think about it, step of faith. I mean, put yourself in Noah's sandals for a moment or maybe in Mrs. Noah's sandals or in his son's and his daughter-in-law's sandals. And this whole event is going on and Noah comes home and he says, Mrs. Noah, listen, God spoke to me. And God told me that it's going to rain. What's rain, Noah? I don't know what rain is, but God told me it's going to rain. <laughs> And it's going to flood the earth and he is going to wipe out every breathing thing on the planet. And God is going to spare our family and he wants us to build this massive boat-like structure so that we can survive. And he announces this whole detailed explanation of what God told him to do and the blueprints. And you know, as well as any of us would be logically, old Mrs. Noah is here in the store and she's thinking, no, are you sure? That this is what God told you. <laughs> Are you and and it's going to take it's going to take quite a bit of time and a lot of dedication. I'm going to have to give myself to this entirely. And no doubt she's hearing this, thinking, "Are you sure, Noah? Are you certain about that?" And then, of course, as he begins to take steps to pursue this whole process, and he's telling other people. No doubt that all the mockery and the persecution, and at the end it tells us that only the eight of them were saved. So all, all, the whole hundred years that he's preparing this boat as a testimony and telling people what's going to happen, no one's listening to him. Everybody thinks that Noah's lost his mind. But as an act of faith, he's doing this in obedience to God. But no doubt you can imagine how his wife and everyone around him is thinking, are you sure, Noah? Are you, are you really sure that God said this to you? And, and, and how difficult it would be to walk in faith throughout that process. You know, Hebrews tells us that Noah is one of those individuals that God sets apart 
as one of those heroes of faith, Hebrews 11.7 tells us this, By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, and prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. So just imagine the tremendous faith that it took of Noah to believe God's word, that God was really going to do this, and that God was going to do something in a way he didn't even know how God was going to do it. God just said, I'm going to do it and follow these instructions. And Noah, as in a faith and obedient choice, said, all right, God, I believe this is what you're going to do, so therefore I'm going to act in faith, I'm going to obey in faith. And it says, being divinely warned of something not yet seen. He had no evidence, he had no proof, he had no validation. The only thing he had was what the voice of God had spoken to him as an individual soul saying, Noah, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what I've called you to do. And so I'm asking you to put it all on the line and as an act of faith. I want you to put your hand to this and start building and start preparing and invest yourself in it. And Noah, you're going to have to just trust me to bring it all to pass. And everyone else around him, no doubt, is, is mocking and questioning, thinking, this guy's lost his mind. I mean, this is just ridiculous. And I mean, look at the, and imagine this big barge in his front yard, and he's working on it day after day after day. And everybody's thinking, this guy is, he's loco. He just lost his mind. But yet he was listening to the voice of God and taking a step of faith and preparing for what God said he was going to do, believing that as he walked it out in faith that God would ultimately fulfill his word. And you know, there are times in our lives where God may speak to us about something, God may forewarn us of something, God may indicate to us that he's going to do something, and we have no evidence, and maybe no one else has heard what God has spoken to us, and we have to be willing to trust the Lord at his word in faith, and be willing, like Noah here, to do according to what God commands us. Despite what mockery that may bring from other people, despite who may question us, who may think we've lost our mind, who may look at us and think, you know what, I don't know what you, you think that you heard, but this is ludicrous. And there be no explanations, it's not logical. But yet Noah demonstrates that life of faith and obedience, and God's honored by that because the prior verses says that without faith it's impossible to please God. And Noah here, this tremendous example of a life of faith and, and how he prepared this ark for the saving of his household. He, his sons, his wife, and his daughter-in-law. So Noah here builds this ark over this hundred-year course of time. And after the hundred years or so approximately has passed, he's built this barge. Chapter 7, verse 1, takes us now to a transitional point. It says, And then the Lord said to Noah, Notice, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take note of the language there. After the building, after all the preparations are made, the ark is now ready, and it's about time for the flood to come that God has spoken of, and the Lord speaks to Noah again. Now, my question is this. Had God said anything to Noah ever since he spoke to him a hundred years prior when he told him to build the boat? Or was there a hundred year silence where he got one instruction? This is what I'm going to do, build the ark. And once he did what God asked him to do, a hundred years later, God speaks to him again. I, I don't know. But man, that's tremendous faith. If you just keep waiting on the Lord, and he doesn't do anything else until God tells him the next thing. 
But after this period of time and the barge is prepared, the Lord then says to him, take note of the language, verse 1, the Lord doesn't say go into the ark. What does he say? Come into the ark. So where's God at in all this? God's inside the ark. The presence of God is inside the ark and he's saying, Noah, come into the ark. He's not saying go into the ark because quite honestly, if I was Noah, well, where are you going? If I'm going in there, God, <laughs> you're about to judge the world. I, I'd prefer to be where you're at. Don't tell me to go somewhere if you're... God, notice the presence of God preceded Noah into the place where God was telling him to go. God was telling him, yes, in one sense, to go into the ark, but the presence of God was there in advance prior to the time that he got there. The presence of God always precedes us and goes before us in the things that God asks of us or leads us into doing. To whereby God goes in front of us, he prepares the way, and then God says, come. Now you come and follow me. I've gone ahead, I've prepared, my presence is there, now you come and follow me. And that's a great assurance. Noah, come into the ark. I'm in here. Bring your family in. You and all your household. He says, because I have seen, interesting, that you are righteous before me in this generation. Interesting, God declaring that he saw Noah as righteous. Now, was Noah a sinful man just like you and I? Absolutely. How did Noah, again, Hebrews 11:7 tells us that he became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Why did God see Noah as righteous? For one reason, because Noah, by faith, believed in the word of God that was spoken to him. God said, Noah, I'm going to judge the world, but yet I am making a way of escape from my judgment. It is through that ark and through you entering into that ark, and in that ark you will be preserved from the judgment that I'm bringing upon the world. And Noah, hearing the word of God, by faith, believed the word of God and acted upon it personally. And because of his faith and his believing and acting by an act of faith upon the word of God, therefore, positionally, he became an heir of righteousness. Like Abraham, who believed the Lord, we're going to read later on, and it was accounted or credited to him as righteousness. This is always the pattern throughout the scriptures, leading up to ultimately what God does in declaring us righteous through the person of Jesus Christ. As we believe by faith, that is what makes God declare us and see us as righteous. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, we're sinful, and God only sees us righteousness when we're, in a sense, in the ark of Christ and we enter into Christ and then God sees us righteous before him because of our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So God says, Noah, I've seen your righteous, no doubt just because of his faith, before me in this generation. And verse 2, he says, you shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, uh, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also, seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. So it seems, again, often we just think one male, one female. It seems that among the clean animals or the animals that would be used for sacrificing, that God actually could have been saying, no, I want you to take seven pairs, male and female, of these, and, and just one pair of the unclean animals. It could seem to indicate here as God's saying, take seven notice of every clean male and female and only two of the animals that are unclean. For after, verse 4, seven more days, so God's telling them now when it's coming, after seven more days, 
I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights. And I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And again, notice the obedient life of Noah, obedience by faith alone. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. So again, God gives him another instruction. Noah, within the next week, within the next seven days, Noah, the time has come to an end and I want you to go in now. I want you to enter in and no doubt having those last seven days probably to make preparations internally, to get the animals maybe into their stalls and to make preparations and so forth. And yet, what was God doing? Tell him to do something, but yet he still had to wait seven more days. God tells him to go in and, and he has to sit there and wait in faith seven more days. But what does Noah do? Noah, again, it says, verse 5, Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Man, you know what? We should insert our name there and let that be our, 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 our aspiration for how we live our lives, that we would do according to all that the Lord commands us. Whatever God tells us to do, that we would be in step with God's timing, that we would be in step with God's voice, and whatever God says to us, that we would do whatever he commands us to do, that we wouldn't need the evidence, the explanation, well, why, Lord? You know, or you know, Just do what God commands. Trust God with the results. Trust God for the reasons. You know, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing when we can just hear the voice of the Lord at times. And, you know, I find sometimes in my life, you know, a lot of times I think we have this sense that, you know, God has to speak to us in these, you know, big profound ways that we only want to determine as the voice of God. And, 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 and in essence, you know, we got to see the handwriting on the wall and this. And I find many times just through the still small voice of the Lord or just an impression that God will put upon my heart, you know, there are occasions, there was even just in this past week, you know, where the Lord, maybe he'll just, he'll put somebody on my mind and he'll put a particular verse on my mind and the, you know, beauty of this texting thing nowadays and, and send somebody a text with a verse that for some reason, this person came to my mind and this verse came to my mind and you send them a text and that you have no idea how timely that, that verse was, and the truth of the matter is, you're right, I had no idea. God did. And all I did was just respond to what impression the Lord put on my heart, because God knows all things. And a lot of times I think that we don't obey everything God asks us to do because we feel like, well, I need a little more details or I need a little more information or I need a little more explanation or if I do this, then what's going to be that and, and what's you know, C and D and E and F and the outline. And God says, no, you get A. When you do A, I'll give you B. And that's the life of faith. And that's what we see throughout the word of God. And Noah was just an obedient man. Whatever God said, Noah just seemed to have this heart of faith where, all right, Lord, if that's what you've commanded me to do, I'll do it. So he now takes the family, goes in, says, verse 7, Noah and with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of all the clean animals, of animals that are unclean, birds, and everything that creeps on the earth, two by two, they went into the ark. Notice again, to Noah, like we talked about last time, the animals just were responding to God's 
prompting to go to Noah. He's not out lassoing up camels and so forth. God's actually bringing the animals to him because God's orchestrating his will. Male and female as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass, verse 10, after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. Again, take note the connection between verse 10 and verse 4. Verse 4, God says, Noah, in seven more days, I'm going to bring the rains upon the earth, go into the ark. Verse 10, Noah does what God asked him to do obediently by faith. He has no more instructions other than to obey God's simple command. Verse 10, it came to pass after seven days. What God says and what God promises, God always fulfills. If God tells us to do something, we act in faith, we act obediently, and we trust God to bring things to pass. And he always does. He's able to do it, whatever it takes. And verse 10 is just that affirmation. Just as God said, it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life. It says it was in the second month on the 17th day of the month. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened And the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So notice there are two sources that that contribute to the flood. There's rain, it tells us here in verse 12. It tells us in verse 11 that that rain came from the windows of heaven being opened. Remember we talked about this water canopy that it seems existed around the early earth, this water vapor canopy that was there prior to the time that it rained, rained before and it sort of kept the earth in this stable tropical climate. Well, it seems God just lets loose and, and breaks that and allows that to fall. And no doubt that's where this great you know, deluge of water comes down for this chronic and continuous rain for 40 days and 40 nights. But it also tells us in verse 11, which a lot of times we don't take note of, it also says the fountains of the great deep were broken up. So not only do you have rain falling for 40 days and 40 nights, but also there are subterranean waters. Remember back in the Garden of Eden, there were rivers, and those rivers had to have a source. So there were water, there's a water hydraulic system that was under the surface, and somehow God uses that as well for a flooding to come up from below. And you have water coming up from the fountains of the great deep subterranean as well as rain coming down for 40 days and 40 nights. And on that very same day, verse 13, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and all three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, so eight people, they and every beast after its kind, all the cattle of their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, And every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two. Again, we have this reiteration of all flesh in which is the breath of life. So those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded them. And take note, verse 16, and the Lord shut him in. Take note of that. Noah enters the ark, God says, come into the ark, and then this very interesting thing, it doesn't say, and Noah shut and bolted the door, it says, the Lord shut him in. As soon as they went into the ark, before God brought the judgment, notice God sealed them, and God shut them in. 
And to me, that's a, a tremendous encouragement to see how the Lord was clearly assuring the salvation and the preservation of Noah and his family as those who were righteous in his sight. He was assuring their salvation and their preservation that they would not be harmed when the wrath of God was being poured out, when the judgment of God came. And to me, I think this is a a beautiful picture of the reminder of how in Jesus, the Bible tells us that we're not appointed to wrath. And, and, And not only when we get saved does the Lord seal us with his Holy Spirit, but I believe that the Lord is going to remove us and is going to tuck us safely away out of harm's way in heaven as he raptures the church before he brings his judgment upon the earth. And the Lord, in a sense, is going to, is going to shut us away for a seven-year period while he brings his judgment during the tribulation upon this earth, and he's going to assure and seal us and make sure that we're not a part of his judgment when it's brought. And just what a, a beautiful thing. The Lord called him in, <clears throat> And then the Lord shut him in and sealed and kept him secure. How wonderful to know the security of God. And how beautiful to see when we read this again too, that it tells us that not just Noah and his wife, but it says, notice that Shem, Ham, Japheth, and and their wives as well. All eight of them. And to me this is beautiful because take note that, that Noah may have been an absolute failure from the world's perspective, for a hundred years, this guy's obeying God. He, he's preaching and warning people of the judgment of God. He's telling people, listen, why are you building that bark? Because that's the means of God's deliverance. That's the means of God's salvation. And if you want to enter in with us, it's a huge vessel. You can enter in with us. Nobody responded to his ministry. It seems no one other than his family members. But you know what? From God's perspective, from my personal perspective, it doesn't matter. That's the most successful ministry you can have. Because his wife and his children and his daughter-in-laws were all on board, even though everybody else wasn't. And you know what? I think a lot of times we tend to make a tragic mistake whereby we want to measure our success or our fruitfulness by how many co-workers we reach or students or neighbors or this or that. You know what? My mentality is this. If my wife and my three children know and love Jesus and end up tucked away in heaven with me, I'm ready to die. You know? Don't get me wrong. I want to reach other people. But there is nobody who can reach my family the way that I can reach my family. And and to me, our primary focus are to be our our prayers, our concern, our ministry for the souls of the people that God's given us a sphere of influence in a way that other people haven't. And that may not mean to be that necessarily that that you're going to be the one to maybe to reach that family member and God may use other people, but no doubt there's a tremendous contribution that we can make. And it was Noah's faith, it was Noah's life, it was Noah's commitment that apparently had an influence on his wife and his sons and his daughter-in-laws, whereby when he went in the ark, they went in with him. Even everybody else thought he was crazy. They believed, you know what, I think he's hearing from God. And they followed him because of his godly example and the power of influence that we can have in our families. And, and what a wonderful thing. You know, if you have a spouse and children who know and love Jesus, you know what, man, you're extremely successful in ministry. You're bearing tremendous fruit. You know, the Bible tells us that God brings a husband and wife together that, he might, that he's seeking godly offspring. And what a wonderful thing 
that Noah here says, does this, he prepares the ark, and again, he, that verse in Hebrews 11, it says, for the saving of his household. And how beautiful, what a great example, as the eight of them go in, the Lord shuts them in and preserves them. And then verse 17 says, and the flood was on the earth for 40 days. And notice, the waters increased, lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. Now, let me just take a minute to draw attention to, to something here, though I shouldn't have to. But verse 17, take notice two times. And this is just one evidence among this whole section of Scripture. The flood was on the earth. It says again at the end of verse 17, and it rose high above the earth, indicating that the Bible clearly teaches in the record that this was a universal worldwide flood. It was not a localized flood. And there are people who try and rationalize and through logic and this and that. Well, it was just, well, it wasn't really a universal flood. It was just a local flood. Well, well, first of all, that's not what the Scripture teaches. And second of all, let me just lay out a very logical thought process. If it was just a local flood, why did Noah have to build a barge? God could have just said, Noah, move over there. <laughs> Because the flood's going to be right here. He, why would he spend a hundred years <laughs> building this big barge as this act of faith and everybody thinking Noah is loco, coco, mo, you know what I mean? Why, why would God just, Noah just move over there? He had a hundred years, he could have moved to another continent if it was just a localized flood. No, it, it was a universal flood. It was a worldwide flood. And here you see that God saying it was a flood that was on the whole earth. It's interesting, there are over 200 plus accounts historically in civilizations around the world of records of some type of a universal flood that took place in history. People who live on different continents separated from oceans who have some record in their civilization history of a time when there was a universal worldwide flood in their ancient records of their civilizations, just validating all the more what the Word of God already teaches, the reality that there was indeed this universal flood whereby God cleansed and judged the whole earth at this time. And verse 18 says, And the waters prevailed greatly and increased on the earth, and the ark was moved about on the surface of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven, notice, were covered. And the waters prevailed 15 cubits. Again, if we use the cubit 18-inch measurement, that would be about 22 and a half foot. So in essence, it's saying the waters prevailed 22 and a half feet upward, and the mountains were covered. So picture the height of mountain ranges, and the scripture is telling us 22 and a half feet above the peaks of the mountain ranges. This is where the the water was actually that high. So you're talking quite a, a tremendous amount of waters prevailing on the earth. And verse 21, and all flesh died. Now that wouldn't happen if it was just a local flood. Some flesh would die. In a local flood, some people die. But all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. 
they were only destroyed from the earth, only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So we're going to see here in totality 377 days total. She's talking a little over a year. A little over a year in totality from the time God tells them to go into the ark. Are they sitting in this ark from the process of those first seven days to the time the flood waters come upon the earth, the 40 days of rain? And then here notice a mention again of, of the waters prevailing on the earth for another 150 days. So there's about another five months if you go by a 30-day uh, month uh, calendar there. And then, of course, we'll see as the waters take time to recede. So you can imagine, this was not some short stay in this barge for these eight people. Good thing it had three decks, because I'm sure on occasion they you know, need a little separation. You know, I need a little long time. I'm going to deck three. You stay here on one. Plus all the animals. And I mean, this was a long, this wasn't a little short stay. They were on this ark a long time, a little over a year. So here they are in these waters for literally months on end now, just floating. And then chapter 8, verse 1 interjects, Then God remembered Noah. Now, that's just sort of a Hebrewism. Don't get the idea when the Bible says, Then God remembered Noah. The indication like God was kind of preoccupied. Oh, whoa, forgot about Noah. And then, by golly, I just left them floating down there, and man, I've, I guess I better get back to them. They're, they're a poor guy, he obeyed me. That's not the idea. It's just a Hebrewism that we're remembered there. Again, God knows everything. He can't forget anything. He can choose not to remember something because he's God. That's why the Bible says he remembers our sins no more. It's not that God's not aware of our sins. He just chooses to forget about our sins in his divine grace and love when he forgives us and he chooses not to deal with us according to our sins. So this is just a, again, a, a Hebraism here that God remembered. No, it just literally means to act on one's behalf once again to fulfill a promise. The idea is, is that there was, a, there was a delay of time whereby there was an inactivity where God was not directly accomplishing something and there comes a time whereby God once again starts to act on that person's behalf to bring about or fulfill the promise or covenant that he had made with them initially. So God now, it says, remembers Noah and every living thing of all the animals that were with him on the ark. And God made a wind, interesting, to pass over the earth and the water subsided. So it seems now that this vapor water canopy has been released from the sky, that it, it drastically affects the weather patterns on the earth, where at one time they were all stable and tropical. Now we have winds and other uh, climate changes we'll see coming into pass. Things are changing on the earth because of this cataclysmic judgment with the flood. God now uses a wind to pass over the earth, and somehow through that wind, he began to cause the waters to recede. Notice, as the waters started to subside, and the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped also, and the rain from heaven was restrained. So again, the same God who can open up fountains and can bring the rains, the same God has the power to stop the rains, and the same God has the power to restrain 
things that does to bring things. So here now God's involvement, stopping and hindering these things. In verse 3, the waters receded continually from the earth, and at the end of 150 days, the waters were decreased, and the ark, notice, rested in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. Now, the mountains of Ararat are basically an area in like northern Turkey. Now, there is among the mountain range, the mountains of Ararat, an actual mountain of Ararat, and there's dispute whether or not that is the actual place where the ark rested or not. And many people do believe that because of the uh, height and elevation of it. But the Bible just tells us here, generically, in the mountains, that is the range of mountains, in the area of Ararat in north Turkey, the reason people think it could be Mount Ararat itself, the actual mountain, is because, as it goes on to say here in verse 5, the waters decreased continually until the 10th month, In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And people tend to think that if it were on the highest elevation, that would then allow, as the waters were receding around it on the other mountain ranges, that if you're on the highest elevation, as the waters continue to recede, then you'd gradually see the peaks of the other mountains in the range around it. Now, again, whether or not there's validation to that, we can't be certain, but we have a general idea of where the ark seems to have come to a place of rest. And, and interesting, the terminology, again, as we, if we think of the ark in a typology of Jesus Christ and how he is, the, uh, in a sense, the, the, the means whereby God brings his deliverance and preservation for us for salvation of his judgment that as you think of some of the things described here, God tells Noah to come into the ark. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And then ultimately it says that the ark itself, it says, rested at a certain point on the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month. Interesting, when you play with the religious and civil calendar of the Jews and you look at the day in which Jesus was raised from the dead, it would be on the same day calendar-wise. And isn't that interesting that Jesus' death finished the work of salvation and the resurrection of Jesus is the culmination of all that he did for us and therefore Jesus becomes our rest, that we can have our rest in Jesus. Hebrews 4 says that he literally becomes our rest. And here the ark now comes to a rest, interesting chronologically, on the same calendar day that Jesus would have raised from the dead, according to the Hebrew calendar. Just very interesting to see, no doubt, a coincidence there, but probably God's divine orchestration of those kind of things. It tells us, so it came to pass, verse 6, at the end then of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, and after almost a year, he probably went, Hallelujah, you know, some fresh air blowing through there. Remember all the animals on board. So he now opens up the window of the ark in which he had made. And he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. Again, remember a raven, they're birds of prey. They feed upon carrion or or dead carcasses. So as this raven would go out, it would gladly find plenty of things to go around, you know, floating animals and carcasses. So it would no doubt be occupied as Noah sent it out. 
That's why verse 8 says, He also sent out from himself a dove, which wouldn't feed upon the carcasses of other animals that would be dead, maybe laying around or floating around. So he sends out a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground because the dove might eat vegetation and therefore he was wanting to see if the waters had gone down far enough where plant life was actually exposed to kind of identify how far the waters had receded. Verse 9, But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot and she returned into the ark for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And now take note of some of the language here, verse 10. And he waited yet another seven days. And again he sent the dove out from the ark. And the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And that's interesting because to this day still, one of the signs of peace, if you've ever seen before, is a dove. Uh, with an olive leaf uh, in its mouth, which is a sign of peace. And, of course, you see where some of these symbols come from in society, from the scriptures. So the dove now comes back, and now it actually has some vegetation in its mouth, indicating to Noah that he knew that the waters had receded from the earth. But again, look at verse 12. Here's our word again. So he waited yet another seven days, and he sent out the dove, which did not return to him Anymore. So now the dove sort of goes free and begins to establish itself, indicating more of the waters completely receding. Verse 13, And it came to pass in the 600th year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked with his own eyes, and indeed now he could see with his own eye that the surface of the ground was dry, and in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Again, we're at 377 days now. Now, take note here. Imagine, again, if you were Noah, you have been in this ark for months and months and months, and then at a certain point, the water starts to recede, and you feel the thing come to rest. You, and the thing stops on the mountains of Ararat. So you realize, okay, the waters are receding. Now, if you're anything like I am, you are thinking, I cannot wait to get out of this thing. You know, Great, it is over, it is done, we've been in this thing for months, I have got to get out of this thing. But you notice, what is Noah doing? Verse 10 says that he waits, and then it tells us again in verse 12, even after he knew the waters had receded all the way down to the ground, Verse 12, he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove again. Verse 13 says he even looked and the surface of the ground was dry, but he still doesn't go bulrushing out of the ark. He's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. And he does not leave the ark, verse 15, until then God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark, you your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. So what did Noah do? Noah is a man of faith, but he's waiting for God's timing. Now, no doubt, impulsively, in his own desire, and his own comfort, and is telling him, look, just let me out of here. I guarantee, I got a family. I guarantee Mrs. Noah and the kids, and if 
nothing else, probably the donor was saying, can we get out of this thing? Just uh, Why can't we get out of this thing? Can't you see? I mean, this is ridiculous. Why are you making us stay in here? Let's get out of here. Use your mind. Be logical. You know that he was, you know, like, but what was Noah doing? Noah said, you know what? I know it's God's will for us to get out of here. But it's not just enough to do what's right. You have to do what's right the right way in God's timing. And sometimes we may know that God's leading us to do something. The problem is, is we get impulsive and therefore we just go ramming forward and we don't wait on God's timing. And there is a tremendous element to a life of faith that teaches us to wait. Many times we think of faith and we think faith is go for it. Take a step of faith, right? Sometimes faith is waiting. Waiting until God clearly gives direction to say go. Notice it's not until verse 15 that then God spoke to Noah saying go out. Noah waited and waited and waited until God said go out. He didn't just go out because he felt like it was the right thing or everyone else felt like it was the right thing. He was waiting on God's timing. And there's a tremendous lesson there. An important element to a life of faith is learning how to wait on God's timing, not getting impatient, not getting impetuous. You know, a life of faith is living without scheming, not having to manipulate and try and make things happen. I got to get out of here. I got to get out there. I got to go do it. No, you need to stay where the presence of God is inside the boat, right where you're at, where God has you until God says, go out. And until God says, go out, you're going out without God. That's not a good idea. <laughs> After everything that just happened, the last thing would have been good for Noah to just go out on his own without waiting for God's instruction. So what a great example he sets for us here. Despite, again, just put in your mind the pressures, the feelings, the all the dynamics there. But Noah, just this great example of by faith saying, no, I've got, got to wait on God's timing. It must be in God's timing. Only when God says is the right time. That's a tremendous example for us I think of how to live a life by faith, by waiting for God's direction, waiting for God's leading. So then God spoke to Noah, verse 15, and said, Go out of the ark, you and your family, and bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that's with you, birds and cattle, he says, of every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So much like the instruction that God began to give to Adam and Eve initially, the reminder now to be fruitful, to multiply. Verse 18, so Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Again, great demonstration, godly man, godly husband, godly father. Go in, they follow him in. Go out, they follow him out. Because he's a man of faith, he waits on God's timing, he obeys God's voice. And look at the tremendous respect. They follow him. Noah goes out, his family goes out with him. Every animal and all the creeping things and whatever creeps on the earth, so a lot of creeps in that day too, nothing new under the sun. According to their families, they all went out of the ark, and we have plenty of them around still. Verse 20, and then Noah, look at the first thing this guy does. I love this, verse 20. First thing he does is he comes out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. First thing he does, first order of business as they step off the boat, 
Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. First time the word altar shows up in the Bible. It's Noah stepping off the ark and he says, you know what? The first thing we need to do is we need to worship God. And we need to consecrate ourselves to God. The whole reason God just had to judge this world is because we became rebellious and independent and we became self-willed and we turned away from God. And he says, so as we start afresh, here he's on new soil, brand new opportunity, and the first thing Noah does is he leads his family to build an altar to the Lord, the very first priority. And it says they offer, it says they're a burnt offering or burnt offerings on the altar. And again, we'll see later on when God begins to prescribe to Noah the different offerings, the distinctions. There was a sin offering, a trespass offering, and the burnt offering, what was unique about it, is in some of the other offerings, a portion of the offering might be kept for the or given to the priest, or sometimes you would uh, eat a portion of the offering and you would offer a portion. But the burnt offering, you would put the entire animal on the altar and the entire thing was just consumed in the fire. And the entire thing was just completely dissolved in the fire. The priest got no portion, you got no portion. It was just completely consumed. It was all burnt up. And it was a picture of what God wants. He wants our lives to be completely consumed and consecrated to him. That not one part of it do we hold back for ourselves or do we give to anyone else. We want the whole thing given over to God. Just the whole thing. God, I want everything. Every part of all of my being, everything I offer to you to be completely consecrated to you. And here this is what we see Noah and his family doing, initiating the worship life among their family as they start a new civilization. And verse 21, notice God's reaction as he sees worship. The Lord smelled a soothing aroma. And the Lord said in his heart, is almost as if God's thinking to himself, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now, we'll talk more about this next week in chapter 9 where God tells Noah, as he makes a covenant with him with a rainbow, that never again would he destroy the earth by floodwaters. But take note here in verse 21, interesting, God's evaluation, even though Noah was a righteous man, and per se he was a godly man, a man of faith and a man of obedience, as God still evaluates humanity in their core, notice God's evaluation, he says that man's imagination of his heart is evil from his youth. God's making a declaration of the reality of the depravity of men's heart. God says that, that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Was Noah a righteous man because of his faith in God? Yeah, but was he a sinner like everybody else? You bet your bottom dollar he was. In fact, it only takes one chapter. Watch what happens by the time we get to the end of chapter 9. Noah's getting his drunk and his sons are acting like knuckleheads. And, and, and as you get to the end of chapter 9, you'll see very quickly Noah reveals that just like everybody else, though he had faith in the Lord, that he had feet of clay and he had his own set of failures, and God just indicating again the reality of that sinfulness of our human heart. And every one of us can trace our lineage back to guess who? To Noah. And that's why every one of us, the inclination of our heart from our youth 
is always, from God's perspective, evil. That's why we need redemption. That's why we need the salvation and deliverance of Jesus Christ because we all have the same propensity even as God makes this evaluation of these eight people as they step off the ark to begin the world again. Well, verse 22, God says, notice, while the earth remains seed time and harvest, interesting, first time that shows up, seed time, first time we see the word harvest, cold and heat, first two times that shows up in the Bible, winter and summer, first time those words show up in the Bible, day and night, shall not cease. So God just makes this declaration. And God makes a declaration that God's faithfulness will be evidenced and clearly seen notice in fixed seasons. It seems that there weren't seasons prior to this time. There was one stable climate like a tropical condition that always existed, even though there was day and night. But now notice, since the flood... And that cataclysmic judgment and the tremendous changes it brought, it brought about the reality of things like cold and heat, winter and summer, seed time and harvest. These are seasons, fixed seasons. And and God says, as long as the earth remains, there will always be fixed changes in seasons. Life will come about in seasons. There will be cold seasons, There'll be heat. There'll be, there'll be seasons that are like winter and there'll be seasons like summer. There's a time of seed time and planting and there's a time of harvest. And God says it's these change of seasons and the fixing of the constant changing of seasons which is an indication of my faithfulness on the earth to humanity. While the earth remains, he says, verse 22, the change of seasons shall not cease. And you know what? That is a great in some ways, encouragement to all of us, because if you're going through a really difficult time, you can count on the faithfulness of God. That season's not going to last forever. It's a season. It's a season. And, and, and maybe you're in a season that's wonderful and you're enjoying that season. Well, can I bring you back to reality? This is a season. And there may come a change of season. And the reality is those changes of seasons in our lives are good things. The change of seasons, just like it is in nature, has important purposes and and designs and reasons behind it, same way in our lives. God is wonderful enough that he allows life to come in seasons. tells us Psalm 1, Blessed is that man who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates upon it day and night. He shall bear fruit, it says, in, in season. And, and life happens in seasons, you know, whether it's family life happens in season and spiritual life happens in seasons. You're going to go through dry seasons and you're going to go through fruitful seasons. You're going to go through hard seasons and you're going to go through seasons where you're rolling around in the green pastures. And when you're in a good season, don't feel guilty. Praise the Lord and enjoy the season. And when you're in the difficult season, don't lose heart because realize it's a season. And God will bring a change of season. As long as the earth remains, God says, there will be this rotation of seasons. And our job is to guess what? Just dwell in the season that you're in. It doesn't work very well if I try and wear a winter coat out on the beach in summer. Summer's not a time to wear a winter coat. The problem that we often have is we don't want to live in the season that we're in. 
we want to stay in the season we were in or we want to get into the next season and God says, don't fight it. Just yield to the season that you're in. Whether it's in parenting, whether it's in your family life, whether it's in ministry, just yield to the season that you're in, dwell in it, and realize that's a testament to the faithfulness of God. And just blossom in that season, yield to it, and trust God. Even as God worked with Noah, the same God who can bring the flood and take away the flood, and this God of power, he can take you through the season. So just let God work through those things. Why don't we stand? Let's pray. We'll conclude our time. Read ahead chapter 9. We'll, as I said, see God continue to deal with Noah, but at least we got him through the flood. Father, thank you for your word and for the lessons of the story of Noah's life. And, and Lord, I don't know where my brothers and sisters are at this night. I know, Lord, their lives are probably much like mine. And, and, and you take us through different seasons, Lord. And we thank you that your word even reminds us of the testament of your faithfulness that as long as this earth remains, Lord, even as it's a part of nature, it just seems to be a part of our lives. But we thank you, Lord, that you're with us in every season and that, Lord, your presence precedes us as you call us into the next season. And, Lord, help us never to rush ahead into some season if you haven't gone before us and commanded us to turn the corner into that next step or transition. Lord, help us to stay in step with you, to walk with you, and to just let you lead us by your Spirit. Lord, we love you. We commit this week ahead to you in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.